time to shake up that paradigm. Welcome to Infinite Banking Radio. Hey everybody, thank you for uh, downloading our podcast. It's uh, it's great to be here. I'm here with a special person, Bradley Gibb. Brad, how's it going? Hey everyone, awesome. Great to be here again. For those of you who are just listening to the podcast, uh, we actually have the video podcast up on our uh, on our YouTube channel. So make sure uh, you go and, and check that out. Uh, Brad works out, so it might be worth your worth your time. Um, just kidding. Today uh, we're gonna we have a, a good topic. It's uh it's an intriguing topic. We've covered it in the past, and it is it is somewhat complicated, and and it does take a, an open mind to really understand some of the the precepts of this uh, economic theory. So we're gonna be talking about Austrian economics today and what what that is. And before you turn your dial off and just say hey, this isn't for me. Patrick and I, the reason I think we're doing this is it's becoming more and more important. Mm-hmm. The the more our economy moves in the direction it's moving and, and the issues that we're facing, this is a topic that, like it or not, you got to get your head around. Yeah, because it affects everyone, even though most people don't think that it does, because it's it's being done. And I, I, don't, I think they don't realize it's being done because they don't understand it. And if you don't understand something, how are you supposed to see how how it affects you? Right. And so hopefully this at least opens your eyes a little bit to how, you know, how the, the, the monetary policy of the U.S. and frankly the world is, uh, is affecting things today. And it's affecting everybody. There is nobody that is, that is not affected by this. Maybe if you live in you know, the middle of the Brazilian jungle and don't have a reliance on any type of modern society. Yeah, but everybody else who is in modern society is affected by some of the decisions that are made and some of the philosophies that are being practiced. And I feel that even with a lot of the lawmakers and people of influence that are practicing uh, and making decisions, they don't even understand it. And that's why the the decisions continue uh, to be perpetually wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like Nixon said, how what, in the 70s, we're all Keynesians now. Yeah. But the question that's not typically asked is, should we be? And without understanding the other side of the coin and the impacts, and now we have 30, 40, 50 years of history to go back and look, hmm. that, that I think is what's really kind of spurring this movement is we can now look back and see, is it doing what we all hoped it was doing? And I think the answer most people are coming to is, is no. Cool. All right. So that's going to be our topic today. So uh, just stick with us through this short break and I'll be right back. Infinite Banking Radio is brought to you by Paradigm Life. Paradigm Life's mission is to provide sound financial education. The lack of it in our society is the root cause of many of the social and political problems that exist. As a result, individuals continue to follow the status quo and make financial decisions that fail them. Infinite Banking Radio will address the difficult to tackle financial issues that are out there and most importantly, give you the viable solutions and strategies to solve them. The topics you'll hear about range from specific economic and market issues to theoretical big picture ideas and strategies. Over the last seven years, our guests have been renowned economists, best-selling authors, and successful real estate investors to help solidify our perspective with the end goal to help you, our valuable listener, to make better financial decisions and come closer to financial freedom. Now here's your host, Patrick Donahoe.
Okay, so we're back. All right, let's let's dive let's dive into this. So, why don't we just and well, first off, let's reference an article that we wrote. So we yeah. wrote an article uh, about a year ago, and uh, so you can go onto our blog and download that. It's uh, the article is called "Practice Austrian Economics," and it talks about what we do at Paradigm Life and how uh, it is really Austrian economics in uh, in practice or practicing Austrian economics. Uh, we've also done podcasts in the past. You and I have done them. Yep. Uh, we've also uh, done some podcast interviews with uh, economists that consider themselves uh, Austrians. Uh, one is, of, of course, Nelson Nash, who is the, mm-hmm. the author of Becoming Your Own Banker. Uh, but also we have you know, guys that actually are, that run in the official circles, the economic circles, uh, uh, Bob Murphy, Robert P. Murphy. And uh, so we'll reference him through this as well. So you can go back and listen to previous podcasts, and a lot of that, uh, a lot of the basic information is there. Also, you know what? I was just thinking this as we were as we were talking in, in the intro. Um, have you ever seen the uh, the rap like the Austria the Keynes versus Keynes versus uh, um, who is it? Who is who is he? Who what's what's the rap? I, yeah, I do remember seeing it. But I don't remember Hayek. Yeah, it's Keynes and Hayek. Is it Hayek? Yeah, so it's Keynes and I think it's Keynes and Hayek. Anyway, there's a cool, there's a series of rap videos. Maybe we'll put the, uh, we'll put the Hyper link to center. those those series. They're uh, they're they're pretty well done, and and I think just the the entertainment value there will help you kind of get your mind around the the theory and the differences in in the theory. Okay, so why don't you why don't you uh, go and answer the first question, which is what is what is Austrian economics? So uh, yeah, Austrian economics. The reason it's called Austrian economics is. The country of Austria is where the first people who really started to solidify this concept mm-hmm. were from or were practicing this. So that's why it, it refers to Austria. You don't have to go there to practice it. it it's obviously worldwide now, but that's where it started. It started. Mm-hmm. There were some early earlier thinkers even beyond before Karl Menger, but he's yeah. kind of the one that was in Austria. Like Adam Smith. Adam Smith really, was kind of considered a you know Austrian. Yeah, very much. And there were some some precursors of people in Spain and some other places, but really it all settled down kind of in Austria. And, and this line of reasoning started there. And it really even started before economics started. Some of these are people are considered the fathers of, of really economic thinking in general and trying to break apart how human interaction takes place. Yeah. And it's just the idea behind freedom. Right? It's the idea of having a free market and having an, an individual be able to make choices based on uh, their desires and their demands as opposed to having those desire and demands influenced by, by someone else, which, which occurred previously when people lived in, you know, feudal, feudal times and they were working in, you know, kind of in a slavery mentality where they weren't able to make their own decisions, trade, barter, et cetera. So, okay. So that's Austrian economics. And there's a, there's a link to the Wikipedia page that kind of gives a breakdown, not to say that that's the best, you know, the best uh, definition for, you know, the history of of Austrian economics. Uh, But you can also go and visit, there's some uh, organizations that are around today, uh, the Foundation of Economic Education is one of them, FEE, so it's fee.org, mm-hmm. and also the Mises Institute, uh, and so that's Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S. And they both have great, pretty long summaries of the history, what it is, who, you know, what the differences are, so that really good resources on both those websites. Yeah, and I think uh, the Agora, like Bill Bonner and the Agora Financial Network, uh, they, they, uh, I don't know if they necessarily consider themselves Austrians, but they still have an affinity toward very similar principles as the Austrian school. Yeah, okay. I would say that would be the basis of it. Okay, so one of the one of the first, uh, so there's a few things that separate Austrians from just kind of the general, the general, uh, you know, economic theory. Um, let's, I would, I would go to just kind of what what occurred 
up to the 2008 crash and then what's occurring right now. So let's just talk mainly about the business cycle and the idea behind how Austrians feel that the current banking system is what is causing uh, the boom and bust cycle, which is this business cycle that the Austrians talk about. So what, why don't you, in a nutshell, give, give the listeners an idea of what happened up to the 2008 housing crisis, or I guess credit crisis. Yeah. So to really understand, I think we need to go back and look at the way most economists look at boom bust cycles. What they see is that individuals, we're irrational or we need help making decisions collectively as a group. And so if there's all of a sudden this lack of demand, we don't want to go out and buy as many things as we wanted to last year. Mm -hmm. That causes there to be, now there's too many products on the market. Prices fall through the floor because prices fell through the floor. Businesses can't make profit. They lay off individuals and that sends us into the downward cycle. But it all starts with this unknown idea of, well, now demand just disappeared. So the solution to it was we need to create more demand. Mm -hmm. And creating more demand the only way you can do that is either the government can create it and they can buy things directly, but we're still typically pretty opposed to the government getting too involved. Mm-hmm. So what they do instead is they give you a little bit extra cash. And they think if you have a little bit more cash, you're going to be more disposed to feel like you can spend some of it rather than save it. Yep. So that, that incentive, whether it's to you as an individual or a business or groups, that's how they try to get, in their mind, the economy so, restarted. So where does that cash come from? It comes from, I think there's probably a couple different places that it can come from, but mainly it all stems with the ability of the Federal Reserve to expand and contract the money supply Mm -hmm. as they deem fit to help the economy along. Okay, so without going into like this huge tangent, so the the people just don't have, I have extra cash. You know, you have to go out and work for that if it was a Mm -hmm. true free market. So the extra cash comes from credit, right? And And the natural drive of the Federal Reserve is they will work with interest rates because obviously the lower uh, interest rates are, the more people will borrow. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the demand is created by incentivizing people to borrow at very low rates to, to stimulate the economy, as you said, because the cash, the true cash that they have, the earnings, that's not credit, the earnings that they had was what was demanding in the past. Mm-hmm. But now if it's no longer there and they don't want to you know, purchase more things, now they have access to credit, which can facilitate that. Yep. And they'll try to make credit ac- accessible to individuals, which they did through loan rates. That was one that, that so really that, made through the people. housing crisis. Yep. But the other way that they do it is through the government can borrow it instead and then give it to us through tax rebates or tax incentives or other types of programs yep. where the, the government will be putting it in your pocket and they're the ones borrowing it. Mm-hmm. But you're right. In either case, it centers on credit creation, which really is the creation of money out of out of nothing. Yep. So what happened is obviously there's a there was credit expansion, interest rates were lowered, people borrowed more, that money cycled through the economy, and then people started to borrow and borrow and borrow. They owed more on their home. People wanted to to buy more home. Uh, and that just kind of fueled this out-of-control growth of real estate prices. And that's the big difference between the Austrian view of the business cycle and the more traditional view or the Keynesian view, where the the lack of demand didn't just come out of nowhere. It actually started with the boom ahead of it. And so with the creation of the money, with the creation of of all the different market manipulations that are out there, it, it, it pushed resources into a different sector of the economy. In this case, it was houses. It was, every, it was easy for everybody to go get houses. So our economy shifted and provided a ton of resources over to building more houses, housing starts, flipping houses. Yeah, people quit, quit their, their job at you know, the hospital or 
at the cell phone company and they took a job as a, a home flipper or they took a job as a mortgage broker or took a job as a real estate agent. And that just, I mean, that yep. just made more, you know, they, now there is more people trying to sell a person on either refinancing or buying another house, yep. right? Yep. And so then one of two things leads to this coming apart. One is the government changes its policy. It can all of a sudden increase interest rates. Then everybody that was planning on buying a house at 4%, at 5%, they maybe can't quite afford it. So they decide to just keep renting. Yep. So then the demand dries up because the prices of everything just changed. Or second to that, because if we've been putting more resources than the economy really has toward one sector of the economy, those resources may just dry up. Yep. There may not be enough. We didn't have enough factories to produce enough lumber to continue supplying the housing market mm. with increased you know, you know, all, all the increased houses. Sure. So one of those two things is going to lead to a drop off in demand. And it, it, it happens precipitously, just like falling off a cliff. Yep. And that's when we wake up one morning and all of a sudden we're in a recession. Yep. So that's the difference with the Austrian side. They, they look to the, what preceded the crash and look to the causes of the boom. And, that's, and so they tie that to the Federal Reserve policies, monetary policies, that really create the business, the the ups and downs in the business cycle. Now, there's a really good there's a good documentary because this we're just kind of glazing over wow. this the, everything that happened. The there's like you know, it's it's the tip of the iceberg type of deal. There's so much that went on with derivatives and what AIG was doing, what Lehman was truly doing, and the secondary mortgage market and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. There's all there's a lot that went into that. So there's a good documentary. It's really long. And you'll probably get really upset if you watch the whole thing and actually understand even half of it. Uh, it's called Inside Inside Job. Now, I don't really agree with the conclusion of, of the documentary as far as what the solution should be. Um, but nonetheless, it really takes you through exactly, exactly what happened and a lot of the fraud that was perpetuated just because of what was trying to be what was trying to stimulate the economy. And it really started with just, you know, 9-11 and 2000. One in Greenspan lowering interest rates to get people to you know go out and transact and and so forth. So yep. all right, so so that's so the business cycle. The Austrians feel that it is caused and influenced by monetary policy, where the Federal Reserve is really adjusting monetary supply um, and lowering interest rates, increasing interest rates. They're just manipulating that to obviously keep a balance in the economy, right? That's probably yep. you know the easiest way to say it. Yeah. So let's let's talk about what's happening right now. Because 2008 is five, six years ago. Okay. Uh, so looking at we're experiencing, you know, growth in a sense. Um, a lot of what the Federal Reserve has done has, you know, we're told that it works. We don't really know if it's working or not. Let's, so let's talk about what it happened between 2008 and right now and what the Federal Reserve was doing and why that is against Austrian theory. So well, I think we all remember the debates and, and the hoopla around bailouts and stimulus yeah. packages. Yep. And that was really what kicked off the what's been happening for the last five years was in response to the to the crash of the housing market we the the government felt they needed to to come in and, and fix things and so it was propping up banks propping up financial institutions propping up companies that were in trouble to try to prevent further erosion of the economy so the 700 billion dollar tarp package uh now and that's just really continued 700 billion dollars was a drop in the bucket compared yeah. to what's now been been laid out trillions for the last five yeah the last five yeah. years but that's that's really what it was was the government now stepping in and 
sopping up the demand because they tried to get consumers to do it and yep. it didn't really work. Mm -hmm. Consumers continued to deleverage. Yeah. They continued to pay their homes off yep. or default really on their debt and not borrow anymore. Mm -hmm. They had kind of learned their lesson. So the government said, well, we have to step in and, and borrow the money. So they're, they're lending it out and they're buying up assets that nobody else really wanted. And that's what's trying to re-stimulate the demand it's, but it's more on a, on a commercial side than it is you and me as individuals. Okay, let's, get, let's give some examples because I, I can see how some, some of you may be, may be lost with that. Because why did the demand decrease? Demand decreased because people were laid off. Maybe they were a contractor or they were a mortgage person. Now they don't have a job because nobody wants to get a loan or nobody wants to build a house. So what are they, what are they doing? They're unemployed. How are unemployment benefits paid? Stimulus, yep. right? Um, then you look at uh, you know, the other lack of demand. People were just afraid. They saw their 401k balances get cut in half. Now it's like, I don't want to spend anything. I'm going to sit home and do, and do nothing. I'm not going to go out to dinner. I'm going to eat ramen. I'm going to eat macaroni and cheese. And I'm going to really cut back. Well, and that, I, that demand, and, and what's the biggest fear of a Keynesian? It's deflation. Yep. Right. It's price prices going down, prices normalizing. So if the demand of individuals because of these, you know, a few things plus a, a, a number of other things, where did the demand come from? How did that demand get shored up? Well, first it was the bailout. Right. The bailout was supposed to do what? The bailout was to it was supposed to give banks liquidity so that they would go and lend to whom? You and me. To you and me. Did they do that? Nope. Nope. So, so that's the first thing. We're not going to go off on a tangent there. But then the government, you know, they had the cash for clunkers uh, deal. They started funding, you know, alternative energy, Solyndra, uh, which is obviously putting money into different sectors. They really didn't earn the money. They just gave money to different sectors who then employed people and kept businesses. And, you know, the demand was created that way. And then what happened with Solyndra as well as, you know, look at GE. I mean, they bailed out GE. I mean, we can go through all the different examples of them trying to create this demand and this artificial demand. And where did, where did the government get the money to do that? Well, like we talked about just a few minutes earlier, they, they actually go to the Federal Reserve and get it from them. Because the government actually, I don't know if everybody really knows this, but the government doesn't print money. Nope. Your dollar bill says a Federal Reserve note. Yep, not right? Treasury note. Yep. So that's who they go to get the money from is the Federal Reserve. And yep. that's why Ben Bernanke was the center of all of this, because mm -hmm. he was the one with the purse strings to be able to make all this happen. Yep. So, so the government creates different debt, right? So they have notes, they have bonds, and then they, they basically create those, and the Federal Reserve buys them. Right. Yeah. yeah. So the, the Treasury gives an IOU to the Federal Reserve and says, I'll pay you this however many trillion dollars, dollars back. trillion dollars, whatever. And they get that many yep. dollar bills. And then they can go out and spend those into the economy, yep. which then is, again, to goose the economy yep. that way. So looking at, and again, going to up to 2008, it was, it was a different type of stimulus that led up to that and the subsequent crash. Mm -hmm. What are we seeing now, which are signs signs of something similar, okay? We're seeing that, yeah, unemployment rates are going low, but labor participation is incredibly low as well. Mm -hmm. And then you have, uh, you know, the rising prices in, you know, whether it's food or other sectors, okay? You also see the Dow at all-time highs. You see the S&P at all-time highs, 
Okay, you see this increase and increase and increase. You were seeing the exact same thing in 2007 leading up to 2008. So again, you're seeing these booms and busts, booms and busts, booms and busts. Now, who knows when the bust is going to come, but all of the growth, maybe not all of it, but I'd say the primary growth has been artificial. And I don't know. It, it, and if, if history... If history is true, we've seen these cycles over and over and over and over again. And the Austrians have pointed to it, and they're still saying the same thing. And that's why we're even talking about all of this, is to help us identify when growth is legitimate and when it's fraudulent yep. or, or artificial. And if we look, you, you mentioned some of the underlying things. Job participation is not up there. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are so many people going back to school because they can't get jobs. Yeah. Um, living you, with their parents. Moving in with their parents. Parents moving in with their kids. There are so many underlying pieces of an economy that are, that are not doing well that you would think, well, if we're in a recovery, those things should be fixed. And they're not. Mm-hmm. Yet we're still seeing the prices up there. Yep. So that understanding from the Austrian view that that manipulation is what causes the ups and downs, if if we look for those manipulation factors, those being some of them, we can start to identify and say, okay, maybe a bubble's coming, maybe a correction's coming, this has to be fixed. Yep. Whereas if, if you're just t- taking the more macro view and saying, well, the market is up, so everything must be okay, then you're going to miss what is potentially coming next. Yep. So it's, it's uh, yeah, it's, I think the more you learn about this, the more you learn about economics and just really what's going on, it may be cumbersome just to try to think about what we're, because we talk about this all, all the time. Uh, in the beginning, you know, it, it, when I started to learn about this, it was cumbersome to me as well. But I, even in the beginning, I realized that there were some principles associated with this school of thought uh, that were true, and regardless of what type of economy we were in, and, and they're just as true today as they were, you know, in the hundreds of years since this theory existed, since central banking really existed. So, so our, our point is really learn about this, start to think about what is being done. And what that's going to allow you to do is position yourself to not get taken down with the ship. Allows you to get on a lifeboat before, before it exits. Because yep. um, tons of people were in this euphoric type of, you know, state of mind in 2006, 2007 with tons of equity in their house and they had their 401k balances were super high, their savings were good, they have a job, everything's going great. Then what happened? The euphoria disappeared yep. and people were in the doldrums and it was it was sad and I think that's existed for a long time but people have this kind of short-term amnesia and uh, so learn, learn about this. So let's, let's kind of, let's kind of uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about um, practicing Austrian economics. So that's what we, that's what we talk about, uh, with what we do as a, as a profession, as a service. So what is the practice that we're talking about? Cause you can practice Austrian economics, you know, uh, being very free market and advocating that you can be Austrian, you know, pro Austrian economics and share with your friends or, or talk about how the, you know, elect leaders that have more of a free market mentality, yada, yada, yada. That's not what we're talking about. What are we talking about in regards to practicing Austrian economics? All those things are good. Do yeah. all those things. Yeah. Share with your friends, tell all of that. But the thing that we're talking about is how can you run your finances more in line with what we consider more true economic principles, mm-hmm. more solid financial principles. Yep. That's what we're talking about. So we're talking about trying to... Um, we just pointed out how debt is a huge problem and has caused so much of this. The more that you can stay out of that or manage that or understand how that works, the better off you're going to be. 
uh, we talked about fractional reserve banking being an issue. So if you can hold your capital and your investments with an institution that doesn't do that, yep. you're going to be in a better financial position than somebody who doesn't. Mm-hmm. So they're, it's trying to take those theoretical principles and then apply them in 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 individuals' financial life. So one, so okay, so that's that's one that's one way in which you can start implementing. I think if we were to kind of separate a few distinct differences, uh, the first one, the the insurance industry is one of the oldest indus- industries. Uh, it existed, you know, at the times of, of banking. Um, but the insurance industry is different because it operates on different principles. It operates more on certainty and math and probability, whereas banking does not necessarily operate on those on that premise. So, so looking at our world today, most individuals are coerced into participating in the banking industry, and they're done. They're, they do it by depositing money into a checking account or a savings account, which the bank can then use to lend to other people, and that's how they make they make their money. Um, but also, we are coerced into participating in government-sponsored plans, which all end up going to Wall Street. Right now, there's you know twenty some odd trillion dollars in qualified plans. Okay, or retirement accounts, and this money gets gets siphoned into Wall Street. They take their fees. They have their transactions. I was reading a report today where uh, mutual funds, the average mutual fund turnover is 80% a year. And what that means within this fund that owns a basket of stocks, those basket of stocks are turned over or transacted. Uh, 80% of them are transacted within the year. Why does that happen? Well, they're investing or whatever. But what happens each time that there's a transaction? Fee. There's a fee, and there's also taxes associated with it. But anyway, mm-hmm. you, they're siphoning this money into Wall Street. Wall Street is the has the biggest lobby group associated with Washington, uh, Washington D.C. So you have this kind of collusion going on. Um, but I feel individuals these days are being coerced into something that has just simply never worked. But because the bulk of people are doing it, um, you know, if the ship does go down, it's kind of like, well, everybody else is going down too, so I'm not alone. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, exiting that industry, exiting, you know, putting money into the, the stock market with those types of investments, mutual funds and ETFs and target date funds and so forth, getting out of that arena, getting into the insurance arena, which has been, which has been proven for hundreds of years and now operating on certainty and probability as opposed to speculation. Okay, that's the first thing. And the second thing is looking at our our savings, whether it's in a checking account or savings account or a CD, that is that is money that allows and it perpetuates the banking system. It allows banks to go out and lend money that really isn't theirs, and they make that spread. And that is one of the other ways in which monetary policy stimulates the economy. Um, so obviously, with the insurance industry, uh, well, maybe it, not, it might not be obvious to you, but in the insurance industry, they don't they're not in the banking industry. When money goes into an insurance contract. Uh, the insurance company does not have the ability to lend more than they have on reserves. And so a lot of the money that's in cash value that's inside of a policy, uh, they, have to, they have to have a 100% reserve requirement associated with that. So the insurance industry does not participate in the fractional banking system, and therefore they don't uh, dilute or cause and dilute the monetary, you know, dilute the value of money and cause inflation. Okay, so in, in, the, insurance, in the insurance world, it's, uh, those are two things that obviously differentiate between you know, the banking industry. The other thing is privacy. So why don't you talk a little bit about, about privacy and that dynamic? Because that's really big for Austrians. Mm-hmm. It's just this idea behind privacy. I mean, I, the big push 2009, 2010 was 
they were pushing gold and silver and gold and silver because what was gold and silver? Gold and silver was, you know, a commodity, but it was able to be kept private. Nobody knew you had it if you own bullion, right? And you put it in a safe or whatever. Okay, so a lot of people flight, uh, flew to that. Why don't you talk about how the privacy aspect works with insurance? Yeah, it, it, it's the same concept that's wrapped up in Bitcoin. I'm sure everybody's heard about Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. The, one of the big uh, problems regulators have with it is it's private. Your name is not attached to it in any way. Um, but the, the privacy thing really, I think, became big also with, was it in Greece where they, anybody who had Cyprus. over, Cyprus, over yeah. a certain amount. The question I asked is, well, or the question you might want to ask on that is, well, how did they know who had over $100,000 in their account, yeah. right? To just wake up one morning and say, all these people, we just penalized anybody for having over that amount. They had to know who those people were first, mm-hmm. okay? And so as much as you might think about your bank account as for your eyes only, mm-hmm. it, it's not. Those, it, it's very easy for a lot of people to know what you have in those accounts. Yep. And that's because the, the banking regulation is such that makes all of that information available. On the because insurance companies are not banks, they're not subject to the same regulations. They're a private company that you have a private contract with, and so just like nobody knows how much is in your safety deposit box, nobody knows how much is in your life insurance policy. Mm-hmm. It's a very similar concept where you're you're contracted with them, and it's it's outside of that regulation. So if we woke up to a Cyprus type situation, it's very unlikely that your insurance policy would be considered as part of those assets. Okay. Yeah. And that, and I was, as, as you were talking, I was thinking about uh, the loan side of things, because obviously with the insurance policy, if you create cash value and create equity, the loan is also private. Whereas there are loans uh, that you, that you have, whether it's a mortgage or whether it's a credit card uh, that, that, that is also kind of public record in a sense. I mean, you go to your county recorder and you can see every, you know, everybody in your county uh, that owns a home, and subsequently, what type of mortgage and debt that they have. So, not only is you know the actual capital and savings itself private, but also the loan associated with it is private as well. So, there's a ton of anonymity there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. All right. Let's uh, let's wrap this let's wrap this thing up. Again, we're referring to an article that we wrote uh, about a year ago, and so you can uh, you can download that off of the off of the blog. Okay. So the infinite banking concept. Let's just let's address that briefly, and uh, and then wrap wrap this up. So the infinite banking concept, as was mentioned, was developed by Nelson Nash. He wrote Becoming Your Own Banker. Uh, I think their website is infinitebanking.org, and this whole this whole concept is basically the exercise of of free market principles. We already talked about private contracts, but the actual concept itself just gives a set of a set of rules. That, uh, that, that help a person um, spend their money better, invest their money wiser. And, uh, and so why don't we talk to that a little bit? Well, I, I think what you said just a few minutes ago about not being deceived into believing that borrowing more is the way to prosperity or investing in mutual funds and my 401k account is going to be the solution. I think your education, especially your education around the principles of infinite banking, is going to act as a filter. And as the propaganda comes in, you'll be able to filter that and say, what's really best for me and what's propaganda for the banks or what's propaganda for the government and, and what's really going to benefit them or what's going to benefit me. And so with, that's what I like about the understanding the infinite banking concept is it acts for me as that filter. And I can operate, I won't 
be led to believe that I should be refinancing my house every couple of years and pulling equity out. Mm -hmm. I, I won't be led to believe that because we're in a, a national emergency, we need to all be you know, investing and booing up the stock market. I can look at the stock market for what it is and determine mm -hmm. where I want my capital to be saved and protected. And I also won't be as trusting of the institutions and the thought process behind them that got us into the mess in the first place. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take my financial picture and trust that with a company that's 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 out to serve my interests and my purposes and has been doing that for 150 years or 200 years that's that for me is is why the infinite banking concept and and understanding austrian economics comes together so well no very well said and and i think you know nelson nash always says you know that uh, the the concept itself helps you think differently and that filter allows you to you know create some sort of framework to interpret information because these days we have I was on a phone with a, 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 a individual the other day, and he was talking about you know he, he goes through his goes through the door when he goes home and, there, and, he, and he steps over uh, Amazon boxes. I think people have this like addiction to Amazon, where it's like you know one click buy, one click buy, and it's like da 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 da. Instead, you don't have to go anywhere; you just click and so so individuals these days have so much opportunity to buy, so much opportunity to to put their money here and to do this. I mean, there's so many things to do, so many things to buy, and oftentimes there's a lot of irrationality associated with those decisions. And the banking system helps you uh, to you know obviously uh, afford the right house, afford the right car, uh, afford a rental property, know whether something is profitable or not profitable, afford college. There's so many different applications to it, but what it does is it helps you realize what is the best decision as opposed to trying to guess what the right decision is. Yep. So okay, everyone, thank you so much for uh, being with us, Brad. Thank you again. Uh, this is a video podcast. If you are listening, so you can go to our YouTube channel and check that out. And uh, we'll talk to you next time.